Luke chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. Luke 12, 1 to 12. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of the multitude had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began saying to his disciples, first of all, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed, and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? And yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are of more value than many sparrows. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man shall confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who will speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not become anxious about how or what you should speak in your defense or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Well, he has just had a conflict with the Pharisees, and as they are departing from there, he encounters these multitudes, and it says in verse 1, under these circumstances, the multitudes have gathered around. It says so many thousands of the multitude had gathered together. There are so many of them, probably tens of thousands of them, they were all gathered together, that they were stepping on one another. The multitudes or the crowds, when they see Jesus, they hear of Jesus, they have a curiosity with Jesus because Jesus heals them. And when they had a need, such as the 5,000, it was late in the day and he could not send them away, he fed them, and then they followed him after that because they wanted more food. But in this case, notice when the multitudes are coming together, as is apt when a multitude is gathered, they are often gathered because there is something that they are pursuing in that it is something that is intriguing, amazing, and they are so intoxicated with this desire to see something amazing or miraculous that they are not thinking straight. They are fanatical and they begin stepping on one another. They cannot control themselves. This is an uncontrolled crowd. And what does Jesus do with this uncontrolled crowd? He sets in, in their hearing uh, a paradigm of what it is to follow him as opposed to following the Pharisees. He's instructing his own personal disciples about what it means to follow him in contrast to the Pharisees because they both claim to hold and believe the truth, but he makes it up, sets up this contrast so that the disciples can be instructed and the multitudes, a few out of the multitudes, will be awakened from their sleep or made sober-minded from their stupor, from their drunkenness, in their fanatical drunkenness, to just see something miraculous, that somehow they will be jolted into realizing 
what it truly means to follow Christ. And in this way, he speaks to his own disciples. It says in verse 1, and he says this, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy both in their doctrine, the way that they teach or what they teach, and also in the way that they live. Both their content and their conduct are hypocritical. Beware of them. This means that they need to know what it is that the enemies, those who are pretending, are teaching the people. They need to know what the difference is between true doctrine and false doctrine, a true life and a false life. They need to know. And the problem with the Pharisees is hypocrisy, this leaven. He uses this analogy of leaven. Leaven or yeast, when it's placed in the dough, just a little bit of it penetrates the whole dough and inflates the dough, makes the dough rise. And he's saying here that the Pharisees have this kind of leaven. They have that kind of sin of hypocrisy in them that it's small in a sense, but it permeates and infects their whole person. And what they teach and believe themselves, they instruct others to do so as well. As he says in Matthew 24, 15, they travel about on land and sea to make one proselyte, one convert, and when they make one, they make him twice as much a son of hell as themselves. That's what they do. They make converts, but the wrong converts, not the true converts, and therefore they are full of hypocrisy. So avoid all kinds of hypocrisy. Don't be pretenders and pretentious. Be sincere, authentic, and true in your Christian life, and then preach that truth to others so that they might come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. Then he says in verse 2, he compares what they are to that which is concealed and then revealed. He says, but there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Nothing that's covered, even, even those things which are covered and hidden will be revealed and known. They will be revealed and known. The, the Pharisees, on the outside, they sound good. On the outside, they are clean, but inside, they are full of filthiness. They're full of dead men's bones. They are whitewashed tombs. This is the way they are. So he says, don't worry about it. A day will come when that which is hidden and concealed in them will be revealed. He's alluding to the day of judgment. The day of judgment awaits them so even though now they get away with things, even though now they are successful, they have a lot of money, they have crowds, whatever they have, they have that now, but they will not have that on the day of judgment. And that's the day that really matters. The day that we have to face God on that time of reckoning when Christ returns and we are all before the judgment seat of Christ. That is said to encourage us. So don't be demoralized because the Pharisees have all the attention and all the, the power and the authority. Don't be demoralized by that. Know that they will be revealed in one day. Then he says in three, accordingly, accordingly, now for us, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. Now he's telling the disciples about what truth they learn in secret, is not supposed to be kept secret. They're supposed to tell others. They're supposed to find others, both friends and foes, friends and strangers. They're supposed to go to them and preach the gospel to them. 
Go tell them about the good news of Christ. Tell them that it's necessary for them to repent of their sins and believe in Christ as their own Lord and Savior. What we have is the light. So we need to make this light known to others. We need to reveal it to others. We need to go wherever we go. The people should know sooner than later that we who are there in whatever context, we are Christians, we are believers, we believe in this gospel and we ask them, do you believe in the gospel? We invite them to come and believe in the gospel. We invite them to come to study the Bible with us because when we study the Bible, we're studying the gospel. We invite them to come to church, so forth. We need to do that. What That which we have and is whispered such as in a small context, in a small Bible study, is not supposed to be kept here, but it is supposed to be shared abroad. Further, verse 4. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, when we do proclaim that which is hidden or learned in a small context and we do proclaim it to others, what will inevitably happen? They will shut the door on us. They, they will have a frown on their face. They'll have the look of hatred on their face. They will say bad words. They'll curse at us. They'll threaten us. They'll ridicule us. They may even be violent against us, even perpetuate violence, physical violence against us. Now, with that in view, he says, my friends, will not Jesus care for his friends? We're not strangers and we're not aliens. We're not hated by him. We're loved by him. So he will take care of his friends. And he addresses us as his friends. Those who truly know him, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what people can do because the person, the worst that a person can do, our enemies can do, is put our physical bodies to death. That's the worst they can do. Now, that is very bad, but it's not throwing us into hell. Only God can throw people into hell, which is what he says in verse 5. God is the one who has the authority, God the Father, to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Does it matter whether our enemies can put us to death and throw us into a pit and not have any kind of honorable burial? Does that matter? Or what's worse, when we face God on the day of judgment, that he's able to take us and throw us into hell, into that bottomless pit, into the lake of fire, in that place where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's worse? Hell, eternal hell is worse. Therefore, we ought to fear God and not men. Don't ever fear man. It says in 2 Timothy 1.7, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power, love, and discipline. He has not given us a spirit of timidity. If God hasn't given us a spirit of timidity, then it's not coming from Him, but it's coming from the world, the flesh, and the devil. They are our enemies, and they are the ones who like to secretly bring about fear or blatantly in our face make us afraid of people and our circumstances so that we not speak up and do what's right. No, it's not God, but the world. In fact, not only is it the world, 
But we are to blame often when we have fear because it's our pride that wells up. We think we deserve better. We think we don't deserve to be put to shame. We think that we are going to be uh, invincible or not ever susceptible to the criticisms of people. We think that the Christian life is full of that. When it's not full of that, it's the very opposite. I said pride because it says in Isaiah 51 verse 12, I, even I, am he who comforts you. Why are you af- who are you that you are afraid of man who dies and of the Son of Man who is made like grass? That you have forgotten the Lord your Maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. That you fear continually all day long because of the fury of the oppressor as he makes ready to destroy. But where is the fury of the oppressor? God says he's the one who comforts us. Then he asks us, who are you? Who do you think you are? Are you some great person? Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? Why should you be afraid of another man who dies and the worst that he can do to you is put you to death? Don't be afraid of that. You're no great person that you should be afraid of that. And when we are afraid of man, we forget the Lord our maker. He made heaven and earth. If he made heaven and earth, can he not take care of us? And can he not deal out retribution to the oppressor and even put to death and put away his fury, his anger against us? Of course. He says, where is the fury of the oppressor? On the day of judgment, one word will take care. It's going to be the sword of the word of the Lord coming out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ that will take care of our oppressors on the day of judgment. Revelation 19.15 and 19.21 assert that fact, that it's going to be the sword of the word of Christ that takes care of them. So don't fear. Rather, fear God above all else, above everyone else. He continues to say how he cares for us. He called us friends in Luke 12, verse 4. Now in verses 6 and 7, he illustrates. He says, Are not five sparrows sold for two cents, and yet not one of them is forgotten before God? Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are of more value than many sparrows. Yes, sparrows are sold. Birds are sold for a very cheap price. They are sold in the marketplace for a very cheap price compared to us. People are of more value than sparrows. So people are more important to God than animals, is his illustration. We're more important to God, and God even has our hairs numbered. Every hair on our body, and even the hairs that fall from our body, are all numbered by God. That's the kind of meticulous concern he has for us. They don't fall haphazardly. To us, they are accidental and haphazard or a matter of age or whatever. Our hairs discolor and become gray or they fall. To us, it happens in terms of natural and accidental causes. That's the way we look at it, but not God. They happen by the appointment of God at a certain time. Hair falls and hair turns gray. And at a certain time, a bird is sold. A bird is captured and then he's sold. And then the bird dies because of God's appointment. Therefore, 
If God cares about the hairs of our head, that he has them numbered, and he cares for the birds, doesn't he care for us even more? Because we are created in the image of God. We are able to worship God. We are able to commune with God. We are redeemed by the blood of Christ. We are of more value than sparrows. So he will take care of us, and there's no need to fear. As a side note, this is one passage of many passages in Scripture that teach that humans are more valuable than animals. No matter what the animal is, are of more value than animals and of more value than plants. So people above plants and people above the beasts and uh, of the field or any other kind of animal. We are of more value than anything else in God's creation. And that's necessary to say because in our day, paganism has infiltrated our culture and even in many churches so that we think that plants are above people and animals, when they are killed, that that is perpetuating murder against animals when the Bible does not consider the death of animals murder. Whether it's for consumption or whether it's for our protection, killing animals is not murder. It's killing them But it's not murder, because they don't possess the image of God. They are not going to be redeemed by the blood of Christ, but we will be. We are redeemed by His blood. We're of more value. He continues further now with both an encouragement to continue His encouragement in verse 8, and then a warning in verse 9. The encouragement in 8, And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man shall confess him also, before the angels of God. This is the encouragement, that if we confess Christ before men, fearlessly before men, we open our mouths and we live a godly life before men, if we confess Christ before men, the Son of Man shall confess Him also before the angels of God. When the day of judgment comes, remember, when Jesus returns, He's going to send forth His heavenly host to the four winds and collect His elect from the four corners. Gather them all together. Put them in one group, also called the sheep, in Matthew chapter 25. And he will put the goats on the left, called the, uh, the goats on his left and the sheep on his right. This is what he will do. And at that point, the angels will also be assembled. So what he says, in vindication of us, confessing us to be one of his own, the angels will witness that. An innumerable host of angels will witness that. That's going to be glorious for him to say in the presence of God the Father and of the holy angels, well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your master. That's what he'll tell us. That's amazing because he actually should be ashamed of us. But he's not ashamed of us. He will confess us because we're in Christ, because we belong to him. Then on the other hand, Verse 9, but he who denies me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. Those goats on his left are those who denied Christ. They have heard of Christ. Many of them have heard of Christ, but they didn't believe in Christ. They heard that they needed to repent of sin, but they refused to repent of sin. They knew better, but they didn't do better. They heard the word, but they were not doers of the word. They will be the one the ones who are denied before the angels of God. Doesn't that sound terrifying and ominous? That there will be an innumerable 
hosts of brilliant, radiant angels who have immense power delegated by God the Father to them. And they will have the authority to do whatever to send us into hell, to confirm that we go to hell. Talking about deniers, those who deny Christ. So let us not be like those who deny Christ. He then describes in verse 10 ways in which people, uh, or a way in which they deny Christ. Verse 10, And everyone who will speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him. When people speak against the Son of Man, and they're not doing this persistently, is what he means. When they don't do it persistently in unbelief, there can be and shall be forgiveness upon repentance. Luke 24, 46 and 47, repentance for forgiveness of sins. If it's against the Son of Man, His person and work, but eventually there is repentance, then there shall be forgiveness. That's what He means in verse 10. But also in verse 10, He who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him. He's speaking of the persistent unbelief would be ultimately a rejection of the Holy Spirit's grace, gracious manifestation of himself by the word of Christ, when it's preached, when it's explained to people. When they forget that in persistent unbelief, then there is no forgiveness. Because that kind of persistent unbelief is not only against the Son of Man, it's also against the Holy Spirit. Now, there is a passage, there are several passages that will reiterate and confirm this interpretation of Luke 12, 10. Hebrews chapter 10 will be one such passage. Hebrews 10, 26 to 31. Hebrews 10, 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There, he, he mentions the rejection of Christ and the Spirit because he says that when we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, we go on sinning willfully. There's persistent willful sin after we know the truth. There's no longer a sacrifice. Nothing remains because we have both trampled the Son of God underfoot and we have insulted the Spirit of grace. That is the Holy Spirit. So there is no forgiveness. One more place that we can look and see a similar statement is made, and that is 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, verse 16. 
16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin, or a sin, not leading to death. John the Apostle makes a distinction between sin not leading to death, and if there is sin not leading to death, then there is forgiveness and life that's possible, and we can and should pray for that to happen. But then there is sin, or a sin, leading to death. In verse 16, I do not say that he should make request for this. Do not make request for this. This is similar to Luke 12.10. When the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit has taken place, when there is persistent willful sin against the Holy Spirit that has taken place, then he says, I do not say that he should make request for this. In 1 John 5, 16 and 17, one may ask, well, doesn't every sin lead to death? Yes, every sin leads to death in that every sin brings about death. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23 or Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes, every sin leads to death in that way. But he, here he's talking about the second death, ultimate death. When people who are guilty of sin, if they repent of that sin, then there's forgiveness and eternal life. That's 1 John 5, 16. But when they don't repent of that sin, nothing else awaits but death, meaning the second death, the lake of fire, hell. That's what he means in Luke twelve ten. That blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven. We continue in verse 11, Luke 12, 11. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not become anxious about how or what you should speak in your defense or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. In verse 11, synagogues, rulers, and authorities... Whether it's religious officials and even those who claim the faith, like in this case, the Jews would have had in the synagogue their officials and their courts. They had their Sanhedrin. They could call people into court. They could do that, but also the Roman authorities could do that in the first century. Whether it's religious or civil authorities, whoever it is that might bring us before them, and the opposition will come from both quarters sometimes. Sometimes from the religious quarter, and sometimes for the governmental quarter, sometimes both. It might come to us. And if it does come to us, do not become anxious. Do not be anxious for anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. We, shouldn't be, we should not be anxious about anything. Not at all. In fact, what we don't know and what might happen to us in a, in a, at a whim or overnight or first thing in the morning or somebody might knock on the door or invade at six, at 6 o'clock in the morning from the authorities, do not become anxious. 
because we possess the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit resides in us. We are his temple and God will take care of his own. And whatever we need to say, we will say it. We don't need to have everything figured out, in other words. This is what people attempt to do. They allow their anxieties overcome them so much that they are, they are engrossed in minutiae. Well, what if this happens? And what if that happens? And what if this happens? And what if that happens? And they can't sleep. They can't live their life in peace. They can't carry on their daily tasks. Yes, we should be prepared for danger. We ought to do it with sobriety. But when we are anxious about it and our anxieties overcome us, then we're not so sober about it. We're intoxicated by our, ang our anxieties. We shouldn't let that happen. We shouldn't be drunk with anxiousness. Not at all. But have sobriety and trust that God will protect us and whatever we need to say and do, the Holy Spirit will instruct us and give us the help we need. Let's be this way. Let's be true to the faith in all circumstances. Let's proclaim the gospel. Let's not be afraid of what people will say, what they will do. Let's prepare ourselves for that day of judgment where Christ will confess us before the angels of God. Let us never deny him. Let us never turn away from the faith. May we never blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Instead, may the Holy Spirit give us the abilities we need, the power we need, the words we need, whenever we need. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.